determined to win show and tell. Technically, it wasn't supposed to be a contest, but everyone tried to outdo each other anyway. When Michael Lewinsky brought in his pet goldfish, the next week, Jenna Johnson brought in a halibut. When Aaron Shipley had his dad do some coin tricks, Lori Schink's dad sawed the music teacher in half. Lulu was usually last in everything, turning in assignments, being chosen by a kickball team, completing the mile and gym. But today, she could feel her fortunes changing, and her heart raced with thoroughbred anticipation. Even though she didn't know what the other children would bring, she couldn't imagine them possessing anything half as wonderful as the secret treasure fluttering in her mason jar. The first child to go was Nora Lowenheck, who brought a JFK half dollar she found on the floor of a Sizzler's. Nora recently had a birthday party, but Lulu wasn't invited, even though Carmen got an invitation while still under quarantine for cholera. The only times Lulu got invited to parties were when the girls' mothers forced them to include her, and even then, Lulu usually declined to attend because she knew she'd be ignored or terrorized. The last party she went to was Imogene May Slatke's, and during Pin the Tail on the Donkey, she was blindfolded and pushed into a creek. Nora Lowenheck sat down and the teacher called on Curtis Laufenberg, who lifted up his shirt and exposed a birthmark he claimed looked like Idaho. Muriel Malloy said he was full of baloney, and the teacher pulled down the U.S. map and put the matter to a class vote. Lulu ignored the birthmark, but she closely studied the map. First Wisconsin, then Illinois, then sequentially on down to Florida. Florida, Lulu knew, was where Malcolm's butterflies vacationed before migrating into outer space and flying directly to the sun. Malcolm's butterfly was Lulu's show-and-tell object, which she kept hidden from view in her mason jar. She was given the jar by Malcolm himself, the old man across the street, after he found her hiding in his bushes from fourth graders with slugs. The butterfly was orange and black, and its wings looked like stained glass windows, with spotted borders like it was dabbed with a tiny paintbrush by a model plane enthusiast or a toy maker. Lulu had never paid much attention to butterflies before, but this one was so beautiful, it seemed too delicate to exist. Malcolm's butterfly lives for one year, Malcolm had said, and then it incinerates itself in the corona of the sun. The strangest thing, no one knows why they do it, but before they do, they whoop it up down in Florida. Lulu's parents discouraged her from associating with Malcolm. They said his mind wasn't right since his wife died. Of course, the wife had been dead for as long as Lulu could remember, so without a means of comparison, he seemed absolutely fine to her. The neighborhood kids often picked on Malcolm, putting various objects on his low-hanging roof, such as patio chairs and lawn gnomes and plastic reindeer made to look like they were humping. 
in the morning, Lulu always saw Malcolm on his lawn, gazing at his roof and murmuring, My, my. After a silent vote, the class determined that Curtis's birthmark looked most like New Hampshire, and the teacher called on Luxie Johansson, who brought in her older brother, Steve. Steve, who had spent a semester in Lima, pulled down the world map and pointed to Peru, and then tried to teach the class how to count to ten in Spanish. Uno, said Steve. Uno is one. Lulu had asked Malcolm if she could borrow his butterfly for show-and-tell the next day, and he'd said, of course, but made her promise to bring it back since it would soon be leaving for Florida. Lulu said, but then won't it kill itself in outer space? And he said, yes, but you should see them down in Sarasota, happiest creatures on God's green earth. Lulu had showed the butterfly to her parents at dinner, and her dad told her it was a monarch, the most common butterfly in the world. Lulu explained that people often made that mistake, but it was actually a Malcolm's butterfly. You could tell by the way it smelled. Dose, said Lexi Johansson's brother. Dose is two. Lulu had her whole speech planned out in her head. She practiced it the night before, delivering it to her stuffed bear, Baxter. She'd explained that Malcolm's butterfly was one of the rarest insects in the world, that it was born only in southern Wisconsin in the spring, and in the winter vacationed in Florida. After one year of life, it migrated into outer space, and then burned up in the sun. Then she'd ask for questions. Yes, said Steve. I did eat lima beans in Lima. Lulu knew some of her classmates would personally know the butterfly's namesake. They were the ones who terrorized him, making the reindeer perform indecent acts on his roof. But maybe, if they knew he'd discovered the most beautiful butterfly on the planet, they'd think twice about shimmying up his drainpipe with a lawn gnome. Maybe they'd give him the respect he deserved and leave his shingles in peace. Thank you, Stephen Lexi, Lulu's teacher said, cutting Steve off at Trace. Next is Lulu Walkenbach. What do you have for us, Lulu? Lulu was now certain she'd win show and tell. There was no way she could lose to JFK, New Hampshire, and Peru. Her classmates, who had ignored and tormented her for years, would finally view her as someone worthy of their friendship and attention. She wished Malcolm could be here, watching her show his beautiful butterfly, who danced frantically in the mason jar, as if searching for a hidden exit. Lulu pressed her eye to the glass, said, Don't worry, this will all be over soon, and then you'll get to go to Florida, as she proudly faced the class.
Leroy Malinkovic bagged groceries at the Hy-Vee. He didn't have to. His famous brother covered all his living expenses, but Leroy's mother thought it would be a good way to meet nice girls, which it wasn't. Leroy weighed 400 pounds and sweat profusely, even in the air conditioning, and had an uncanny knack for making everyone around him extremely uncomfortable. So all the girls Leroy's age used aisle two, where Mario was the bagger, even if it meant waiting in line as far back as canned fruit, applesauce, and lentils. Helen the cashier lady liked working with Leroy, since he saved her a lot of work, but as far as nice girls went, Leroy was flat out of luck. The only women Leroy met were white-haired and bitter, and they were constantly demanding price checks. It was ten minutes to Leroy's lunch break, and he was salivating just thinking about it. Julius in Deli Meats was already hard at work on Leroy's deluxe quintuple stacker special. The great paradox of Leroy's life, of course, was that the root of all of his misery was also his only source of joy. Prescription strength double dutch chocolate, super saturated crumb cake delights, batter fried Cajun lard and sausage. When he felt ashamed about his weight, he became depressed. And when he became depressed, he gorged himself on the dessert aisle, a cruel, circular cycle as unavoidable as the seasons or phases of the moon. Leroy had tried diets, the South Beach diet, the Guantanamo diet, the diet of prehistoric man, but these torturous exercises in frugality and self-denial had left him only several pounds lighter and crippled by acute agoraphobia. Only when he returned to marshmallow-covered kielbasas and french-fried onion-rich potato skins could he summon the courage to mightily struggle forth from his bed. The lines were thin and Leroy's aisle was empty, so there was nothing to do but watch the clock. Helen, the cashier lady, grabbed the tabloids and occasionally said, says here some singer lady is a queer or looks like the president swallowed himself a hamster. But Leroy was solely focused on the clocks. Tick, tick, tick. Next to the tabloids were the gossip magazines and sometimes Leroy's famous brother was on the cover, but he never opened them to discover his brother's favorite aerobic workout or his thoughts on Lebanon or the body part he found sexiest on a woman. He knew people only cared about such things because his brother was on TV and good-looking. When Leroy's brother was little, things were different. Leroy was older, twice his brother's size, and could easily enforce his will with an unrelenting headlock. Until Leroy reached middle school, when he and his brother signed an uneasy ceasefire in the presence of a notary public, Leroy waged a sadistic campaign of swirlies, half-Nelsons, and Indian rug burns, and even drowned his brother's gerbil in the fish tank, which Leroy claimed was a suicide, barring the gerbil from a proper Christian burial. This time, Leroy's classmates had already begun to ostracize him, calling him Porky the Pig or K-1 
KFC bargain bucket, but when he came home, he was someone to be feared, and his brother bore the full brunt of his misdirected rage. Then, of course, Leroy's brother hit puberty, and Leroy's authority crumbled like the Berlin Wall. His brother became taller, more muscular, and dated the most attractive girls in school, while Leroy spent Saturday nights alone with his fancy cakes. When Leroy's brother starred in his first musical and took his bows to thunderous applause, it finally hit Leroy that the hierarchy of power had been reversed for good, that no one would ever chant Leroy's name, no one would present him with bouquets of flowers, no one would ever insert his cast bio into a playbill. Leroy Malenkovic, star of stage and screen, favorite role, Prospero and The Tempest. He could see the rest of his life, stretching from the apron to the sky of the painted backdrops, and as the audience rose for a standing ovation, he was powerless not to join them, lifted by forces beyond his control. There were five minutes left before lunchtime, and Leroy's stomach was audibly growling as Helen thumbed through a cosmopolitan. She was always getting worked up about the women's magazines, saying the cover models were skinny as soybeans and reciting the article headings with utter disdain, but Leroy knew she stole them to take home when she thought no one was looking. Now listen to this one, said Helen, sneering at the Cosmopolitan. It says here, 99 ways to please your man. But let's suppose you learn all 99 ways to please your man, and then along comes some other woman who knows just one way to please her man, but it's different from any of your 99. Now, what do you think your man's going to do then? Leroy shrugged his shoulders. He's going to jump on that woman like a hobby horse, said Helen. I've seen it happen, time and time again. Leroy understood why Helen was both repulsed and addicted to the magazines. It was like him and his ho-hos and fancy cakes. She hated the cover models because they were impossibly beautiful, but she also worshipped them. They were a comfort to her in a life otherwise barren, ugly, and formless. If the models didn't exist, maybe the world's standards could be lowered and Helen could be considered pretty. There they were, falling out of their flimsy dresses and checkout aisles across the country, and even though they made Helen feel inadequate, they also offered her a glimpse of a world glamorous and fantastic, with lavish parties and scandalous romantic affairs. Leroy's own brother inhabited this world, and sometimes Leroy wondered what it would be like to trade places, to walk down the red carpets and see the cameras flash and have even the most banal details of his life discussed by gossip columnists across the world. Leroy's new ferret. Leroy spanked as a child. Leroy may or may not admire Wichita. He could go to movie premieres, press junkets, cause a nationwide stir with his hairstyle. What would this be like to be immortalized in the checkout aisle? And what about the gossip columnists themselves, the journalists, the paparazzi? Did they too fantasize about celebrity, about transforming to the very people they were paid to slander? 
Whenever Leroy saw articles about this actress's eating disorder or that actress's divorce, he wondered if the authors secretly wished that they were these beautiful damaged women entertaining the masses with their misery. Yes, Larry, I was a teenage coke addict. Yes, Larry, I huffed gallons of paint. He imagined them practicing runway walks in their offices, delivering Oscar speeches in the shower. He imagined them thanking their producers and their husbands for their love and support. He imagined them awake at 3 a.m., staring at their laptops, struggling to make a deadline on 500 words about Miss So-and-So's weight gain, and thinking, if only I were Miss So-and-So, with all her money and success, but slightly thinner and with better hair and without that hideous green dress. Or maybe they were content, at peace, happy to exist in the margins of fame, and it was only Leroy who dreamed of another existence. Maybe Leroy was the only one uncomfortable in his own pale, pockmarked skin. One minute before lunchtime, aisle one finally got a customer, and Leroy asked for her bag preference and tried not to sweat on the food. The customer was in her 90s, had blue hair, and put her items on the conveyor belt one at a time with great apprehension, as if sending them off to their deaths. Be careful with the kiwis, she said to Leroy. They are fragile and easily bruised. Leroy dutifully complied and handled the kiwis like infants while envisioning the deluxe quintuple stacker special. Julius was always dreaming up new sandwiches, the rear admiral, the sunny Liston, and when Leroy greedily devoured Julius's latest creation, Julius always laughed and said, Now there is a happy man. Leroy knew he was supposed to eat healthy, to abstain from foods rich in fat, and sodium, and cholesterol, but lunch break was the only part of his workday that he looked forward to. After it was over, there was nothing but paper or plastic and not meeting nice girls, so who could blame him for making the most of his 30 minutes of happiness? If he listened to his doctor, he would live longer, but at this point, longevity seemed less like a prize than a punishment, and stripped of his comfort foods, Leroy was little more than a hollow husk of himself. He knew he should exercise, knew he should diet, but his mind held little sway over his gut. In short, he knew he had to change, but was incapable of changing. Like Popeye, he was what he was. Did you see the magazines? said Helen, the cashier lady, to the customer. Some girl in Omaha traded in her kid for a Chevy. The customer scanned the magazine rack, poring over the pictures of skinny actresses and muscular shirtless men, and shook her head, saying, Nothing good, nothing good, as she reached in her purse for her money. Helen nodded, said, Trash written by trash for trash, but the customer ignored her and kept rummaging. They were mostly like this, the women in Leroy's aisle, clipping coupons and clinging persistently to life. In aisle two, Mario got all the nice girls, but aisle one attracted only decomposition 
and death. One of the tabloids had a picture of a zombie woman, and she was purportedly stalking the sands of Las Vegas and eating cabaret performers, absorbing their talents and singing Candle in the Wind and the Pina Colada song as she feasted on the flesh of her victims. Embarrassingly, this only made Leroy hungrier for his quintuple stacker special, and he started to leave until the manager abruptly stopped him. That woman came by last night, the manager said to Leroy and Helen. They didn't have any money, and we had to put all the food back on the shelves. The customer kept frisking her handbag, and Helen said, Ma'am, did you forget your wallet? But the customer paid no attention, continuing her search as if she expected success at any moment. The manager tried to question her, also to no avail, and Leroy slipped away toward his lunch. He could practically taste it now, the pastrami, the liverwurst, the special sauce, and the mountains of onions. The customer kept rummaging, nothing good, nothing good, but Leroy couldn't hear her. He was already long gone. The customer was led away, gently, by the manager, and the food was left in the cart to be restocked. As the opening automatic doors barely made a whisper to the shoppers and deli meats, Leroy bit into his sandwich, and Julia said, Now there is a happy man. for unwanted infants when he was seven years old. The mama couldn't fit his whole body in the incubated drop-off box, so she shoved in just his head and secured the rest of Billy with a dog leash tied hastily to a nearby parking meter. She told him to be quiet and good, that she was leaving on vacation, and Billy obeyed, for it was true, the mama did deserve a vacation. 
she made him promise not to cry and gave his torso a little squeeze. And when the repository nurses came to work in the morning, they found Billy exactly as he had been left, dutifully stationary and tied up like a pet cocker spaniel. While the police tried to track down the mama's whereabouts, Billy was placed with a series of foster families. His first family was the Smiths, and the father was so obsessed with TV sitcoms that anytime Billy said anything, a homemade canned applause system laughed from wall-mounted speakers, which caused Billy to shiver with terror and occasionally wet himself. Mrs. Smith was always yelling at her husband, telling him to leave the new foster child alone, but Mr. Smith welcomed conflict, said it made for dynamite ratings, and, in fact, encouraged his own children to cause as much trouble as possible. The Smith children drilled holes in the wall and toilet papered the family pets and drew pot plants in their senile neighbor's garden, while poor Billy merely sat shivering in his room trying to be quiet and good, just like the mama had told him. Whenever Billy switches families, he asks his foster parents how long a vacation is to get some idea of when the mama will return. No one ever gives him a definitive answer, but he thinks it will be pretty soon. Mrs. Johnson, his current foster mother, always tells him he's valued and cherished and loved, but he knows that already. Of course he's cherished and loved. The mama might not have smiled all the time like Mrs. Johnson, might not have hugged him and stroked his hair and called him a sweet little angel, but she had her own way of showing her affection. She sang to him sometimes, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, slipped him some gas station candy when the attendant wasn't looking. Of course she loves him. That isn't the question. The real question is, when is she coming back? Mrs. Johnson has two children, Nina and Lena, who confuse Billy with their unrelenting meanness. Their mother buys them fancy clothes and cooks them the quiche dinners they like and constantly reminds them they're valued and cherished and loved. And all they do is stomp around the house with their expensive designer shoes and scream at their mother that they hate her. Mrs. Johnson tells Billy it's just a phase, perfectly normal, and wipes the tears from her eyes as she heats up her children's quiche, but Billy doesn't think it's right. The mama yelled at Billy, but it was always because he deserved it. Billy was a bad egg, a problem child, whereas Mrs. Johnson is a saint, golden haloed, and blameless. Billy's second family, the Chesnicks, spoke in a secret language he never deciphered. They sat down for dinner and stared at each other, silent except for their tapping silverware, and communicated through advanced means that Billy could only guess at. The mama would have liked the Chesnicks. She was always saying, Sweet Jesus, if only I could have some peace and quiet. But, unfortunately, they disintegrated a week after Billy's arrival, during an initially routine, telepathic family dinner. The main course was chicken Kiev, the sides were slaw and creamed corn, and as the Chesnicks stared at each other and methodically clinked their forks, Mr. Chesnick took his plate and smashed it over his own head, 
howling the only words Billy ever heard him say, which were, And how was your day, hon? Mr. Chesnick got in the family sedan and drove off. Mrs. Chesnick made a few whispered phone calls, and the next day, social services came and whisked Billy gently away. He hadn't had chicken Kiev since. Dinners with the Johnsons are not quite as catastrophic, but close. Mrs. Johnson asks her daughters a question like, What did you learn today? Or, How are my sweet angels? And the Johnson girls scowl and say, Like you even care, and knock over their orange sodas for emphasis. After dutifully cleaning up the spilled soda, Mrs. Johnson asks further questions, trying to pry some bit of information illuminating the lives of the beloved fruit of her loins, but the daughters just say, God, why are you grilling us? Are you trying to find out if we're on drugs? And storm off to their rooms, leaving their empty plates on the table. Billy wasn't allowed to speak when the mama was eating, on account of his interrupting her TV shows, but still, dinner was nice. The mama would give him some of her microwave burrito or gas station jerky, and the two would sit on the couch, Billy and the mama, and watch her TV shows together. Once Mrs. Johnson's daughters are gone, dinner is pleasant. Mrs. Johnson tells Billy stories about growing up in Oklahoma and riding horses named Bronco and Buster, but it's not the same as being on the couch with a mama, even when she was in one of her moods. If he had been allowed to speak, he would have said, thank you, mama, for such a nice dinner, but he wasn't, so he just watched her shows and smiled. When Billy lived with the Smiths, he was told his good behavior was bad for ratings, and Mr. Smith gave him one week to shape up his act. At home, he always made the mama angry, made her say, I didn't raise you to be a nuisance, and you're not making my life any easier, but he had since promised he would be quiet and good. Mr. Smith said, Look, Billy, conflict is the key to sitcom success, but Billy remembered all the trouble he caused the mama, how she said she worked hard enough without all his rabble-rousing, and he felt ashamed for making her life so difficult and vowed never to act that way again. Eventually, after the week had passed, Mr. Smith exploded at the dinner table and said, that child is poisoning our family's ratings, but Billy didn't care. He knew that when the mama returned, he would be a sweet little angel, a model son, just like she wanted. Since the Johnson daughters wouldn't be caught dead in public with their mother, Mrs. Johnson spends her weekends exclusively with Billy. She takes him to the park, the ice skating rink, the baseball field, the zoo, and treats him to ice cream at the place where you can actually see the dairy cows. Billy has never seen these places. The mama rarely took him out of the trailer, so Mrs. Johnson explains everything. How the penguins incubate their chicks on their feet, how a batter can overrun first base, how you lick the dripping ice cream as it travels down your cone. When Mrs. Johnson and Billy come home and the family message board says, I hope you die, 
Mrs. Johnson calmly wiped her daughter's handwriting away with a moist towel, dabbed the corners of her eyes, and sweetly strokes Billy's hair and sings. Not Tom Petty, but still nice. Mrs. Johnson hasn't gotten rid of Billy yet, but he expects to leave soon. Any day now, the mama will come retrieve him. The next time she vacations, he hopes she leaves him with Mrs. Johnson. If the mama knew her, she wouldn't have stuck his head in the drop-off box. At night, while Nina and Lena listen to loud, angry music in their rooms, Mrs. Johnson tucks Billy into bed and says, Sweet dreams, kissing him softly on his forehead, and in the darkness of his room, her faint shadow could almost be the mama's, looming benevolently in the doorway protecting him from harm. When the door closes, before Billy drifts off to sleep, he says his prayers and thanks God for making such a nice lady as Mrs. Johnson. He can't wait to tell the mama all about her. Mama, don't-